um, it, you know that there is a big jamboree that's going to go on here this weekend if you're available and would love to see a couple of thousand people on and off our campus um, with the football jamboree that starts. We'd love to have you. Um, it's just a way to uh, share all that we have with uh, our community, uh, our neighborhood. Um, and, um, you know, to whom much is given, much is required. You're going to hear that a lot. Um, I was going to tell you also that all options had failed um, concerning my, my uh, getting uh, all this luggage to um, uh, Baku, but another option uh, arose tonight. And so um, there's been a lot of people who have worked very hard. Bill West was one guy that really tried so difficult, so hard to get through Federal Express and over. It just didn't work. But there is another option, so uh, you might. Well, I don't want to carry all this stuff. Uh, I'm I'm too old. So uh, pray with me. Okay, guys. Um, before we look at the text tonight, um, I want to go to the book. Uh, I encourage you to read this book, and and I've run into a couple of people, and I've asked them how'd it go. Well, it was all right. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I, I, you know, I don't often recommend a book, and I hate it that, I mean, it wasn't but 85 pages, so it wouldn't, couldn't have been that bad, but um, uh, I've mentioned this book before. I brought it out about 10 years ago, um, and so tonight I want to I, I tell you a couple of things that I think will help you um, understand the book, or at least get a, a different perspective on the book. You know, uh, as I said, it is uh, one of the classics uh, from Robert Louis Stevenson, who was born in 1850. Stevenson's grandfather on his mother's side was a minister of the Church of Scotland. His parents were devout Presbyterians. Um, when, when, when Stevenson began to uh, enjoy a little bit of fame, he began to travel. And he, um, he, he got to Hawaii... And there he ran into a minister that he fought with and didn't like. The minister's name was Reverend Hyde. Um, he died at the age of 44, that is, Stevenson did, uh, in Samoa. But guys, uh, that background, just that little bit of coming from the Church of Scotland, devout uh, Presbyterians, the point is that most people who study this thing agree that this book is an account of Robert Louis Stevenson's own personal, intense spiritual struggles. That what you're getting, for instance, um, the name Dr. Jekyll. Um, some would say, now I don't know whether Stevenson intended this, this is just one of these um, analyses, um, that... Jekyll is a combination of two French words, je, I, and kill, I kill. But that this is a book about Stevenson's own personal struggles, some of which he got right, but um, he didn't get it all right. He got the part, you remember I told you this last week that I, I got from another preacher, it's the battle that you cannot win versus the battle that you cannot lose. That first part, the battle that you cannot win, he got right. 
And that's what this book is about. You remember the potion, if you read it, the potion uh, most would suggest is the role of the law and how the law, what the law played in Stevenson's life. And as Romans 7 talks about, that, um, that the law aggravates sin. And so this, this turning of this man into this beast um, brought on uh, by the potion that many would suggest is, is the, the role that the law played in his life. Um, I don't know that he was a Christian. I don't know that he died as a Christian. I don't know that he lived as one. I don't know that. All I'm saying is that he got the first part right. And I want to read you some stuff, guys, um, that he said. It, and, I, and I said to you last week, um, the last chapter is enough. It's, it's worth the price of the book. This is, um, I don't know what chapter, it's on page 70 in my book, but it's called Henry Jekyll's Full Statement of the Case. I think it's chapter 7. Um, and I'm just going to read a couple of snatches. I mean, I'm not long past, but he talks about, um, I stood already committed to a profound duplicity of life. That's what Romans 7 is about, guys. I mean, he even uses language that he got out of Romans 7. That he was a slave to, he sold as a slave to my original evil. That's on page 74. That came from Romans 7. Um, uh, let's see. A severed in me those provinces of good and ill which divide and compound man's dual nature. That's Romans 7. In this case, I was driven to reflect deeply and inveterately on that hard law of life. I was in no sense a hypocrite. Both sides of me were in dead earnest. <clears throat> now remember, guys, the battle that I cannot win and the battle that I cannot lose. In the battle that I cannot win, there are these two natures that are warring. And I am in no sense a hypocrite. Both sides of me were in dead earnest. This perennial war among my members, that's language that comes from Romans 7. Um, that man is not truly one, but truly two. Guys, that's this is coming from a young man that was raised in a devout Presbyterian home, and he's wrestling with his own soul. Um, he talks about, um, he, he defined himself as an incongruous compound. Come on, y'all. Don't you see yourself as an incongruous compound? Yeah, the good that I would, I do not do, but the very evil I hate, I find an incongruous compound. The dual nature of man. I can read this, for, and I, we don't have the time, but um, um, I compounded the elements, watched them boil and smoke together in the glass when the evolution... The evolution uh, had subsided with a strong glow of courage, drank off the portion. That's the role of the law. M most analyzers of this little novel, novella would say. Um, I knew myself at the first breath of this new life to be more wicked, tenfold more wicked. Sold a slave to my original, my original evil. And the thought in that moment braced and delighted me like wine. In the battle that he could not win, in his unregenerate state, the law comes and shows him, 
oh, I'm far worse than I ever dreamed. And he enjoyed that thought. Um, I stretched out my hands, exulting in the freshness of these sensations. And in the act, I was suddenly aware that I had lost in stature. A few more. The movement was thus wholly towards the worse. In an unregenerate state, ladies and gentlemen, people aren't moving towards the good. That's what you see happening in your culture, not just in individuals. It ain't going to get better. Um, <clears throat> all right, let me do this. And I, 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 he, he, he drinks the potion and he says, my devil had long been caged. He came out roaring. You know, guys, I see that in your children. You raise them in these homes where you're trying to do right and be a godly parent, and, and then you know you ship them off to the secular university, and and this this lion had long been caged. But then they leave your side. No, it's the devil had long been caged. And the devil comes out roaring. And you wonder, well, what happened to my little kid, my, my little Johnny? I'll tell you what. He's an, incong- he's an incongruous compound. In that unregenerate state. Um, oh, all right, I'm going to read you one more. But this comes from, um, this is an assessment of the book by G.K. Chesterton. If you don't know Chesterton, um, start with the book, The Man Who Was Thursday. It, again, it's brief, um, and you won't understand a thing to, that he writes until the last two pages. And then the last two pages are just... It's called the denouement. It, it, is, it is marvelous. But listen to what Chesterton says, says about this book. The real stab of the story is not in the discovery that the one man is two men, but in the discovery that the two men are one man. That would be us. After all the diverse wanderings and warring of those two incompatible beings, there was still only one man born and only one man buried. The point of the story is not that a man can cut himself off from his conscience, but that he cannot. (laughs) We can't, can we? The surgical operation is fatal in the story. It is an amputation of which both the parts die. Jekyll, even in dying declares the conclusion of the matter that the load of man's moral struggle cannot be thus escaped. The reason is that there can never be equality between the evil and the good. Jekyll and Hyde are not twin brothers. They are rather, as one of them truly remarks, like father and son. After all, Jekyll created Hyde. 
Hyde would have never created Jekyll. He only destroyed Jekyll. <laughs> Out of me comes this Hyde. And he destroys me. Gang, he got that part right. The unregenerate man who stays in his unregeneracy will find that Hyde will ultimately consume him. But he didn't get the other part right. And that's what I want to show you tonight from the text, Romans 7. In terms of the battle that you cannot lose. You see, that's what Paul is describing in Romans 7. The same thing the book is discussing, guys. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed that you can't see it. But um, in verses 7 through 12, he's battling with himself. The law comes in and, and, and he dies because you know now he sees his sin and I'm tenfold worse than I ever thought. But this text doesn't stop there. And that's where that book does. Guys, um, the warfare that continues, but it's now a different warfare now that I have met Christ. Now, let me show you how you see that in these, these following verses. Here's what I'm saying. Verses 7 through 12 is a discussion about the war that you cannot win. Verses 13 through 24 are about the war that you cannot lose. There is a shift. Some of you would say it's a subtle shift. I don't, I don't think it's so subtle. Because things change in verse 13. And we go from the battle that, could not, that I could not win, and we come to the battle that I cannot lose. And here's how you see it in verses 13 and following. Number one. There is a shift in the verbs to the present tense. All of the verbs up, up to verse 13 are aorist verbs, which, which are past tense verbs. When you come to verse 13, now Paul is describing his present condition. Now the verbs are all present tense. You don't see that as clearly in the English as you do in the Greek. But you can see it in the English. Secondly, gang, non-Christians do not long to keep God's law. Christians do. Though we fail to. There is a longing in us to obey that. Even though we don't. Because the battle, the war continues. Um, third, there is a delight in God's law. Look at it in verse 14. Uh, for we know that the law is spiritual. Look in verse 16. Now I do not know what I want. I agree that with the law that it is good. Look at verse 22. For I delight in the law. Gang, non-Christians don't say that. Christians say that. Now, by the way, this is the guy who says, I don't get it. The good that I would, I do not do, but the very evil I hate, I do. He's the same man who delights in God's law. 
Um, verse 15. Okay, verse 15 is key. I use it all the time. Particularly for those of you who struggle with assurance. <coughs> Pardon me. If you are one that tends to struggle with assurance, would you please listen for three more minutes? Look at verse 15. I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. Gang, the key word in that little sentence is the words, I hate. I don't get it, although he does explain it in this, that it is sin that's within him. The battle that is continuing to go on. But I do the very thing. I end up doing the very thing. What kind of thing? Oh, the things that I hate. The non-Christian does not hate his sin. Christians do. So you do a bad thing. You did a bad thing. I'm sorry, there'll be consequences. It won't be good. And, and don't do it. But one of the evidences that you belong to Jesus Christ is that what you did that was so wrong, you hate it. If you look at me and say, Jimmy, I've done this and I hate it. How could I ever be a Christian? I would say, because you just said I hate it. Because non-Christians don't hate it. He's describing a man who has come to faith, beginning in verse 13. There's a couple more. Um, he talks about in verse 24 that he knows that the deliverance of this body is something future. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? He, he implies that there's going to be a deliverance, but it won't be now. Very frankly, guys, Robert Louis Stevenson got it right. Most non-Christians don't. They don't even know about the rage, the war that's going on inside them. They don't realize that they're 10 times worse than they ever dreamed. They think they're morally upstanding, full of rectitude people. Ladies and gentlemen, there is nothing more wicked than to reject the offer of Jesus Christ's payment for your sin. Nothing is more wicked. You know, guys, we, we don't fight around here, but we, we discuss around here John 3.16. Every time I teach a systematics class, people will, well, wait a minute, Dr. Young, what about John 3.16 and that stuff that you've been teaching? I don't like John 3.16. Ladies and gentlemen, for God so loved the world, um, the term world in, first John, in John 3.16 has nothing to do with largeness. It has to do with badness. What did God love? Badness. And so the love of Jesus Christ will never be small to you ever again. Or it shouldn't be. That's not about what he, it's, it's, it's describing a place that's dripping with sin. God so loved that. You know, guys, um, in Ephesians chapter 5, 
when it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. You know that statement? Tell me. Have you been around the church very much? Have you been around this church very much? I mean, you know, it's filled with fine, upstanding, morally pure, uh, precious people. Right? Is that what the church is? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved. Guys, the non-Christian doesn't think like that. He thinks he's a fine, upstanding person. I may have done that, but I'm, I'm a good man. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I may be the only one in the room, but I'm not. I'm ten times more wicked than I ever dreamed. That's what Stevenson said. Um, oh, and i got to write this up on this board, guys. If you can get this, this is a gospel summary. And this is, in, a, in, in one sense, summarizing Romans 7. Samuel uses that peccator. I've written that up here before too. It's a, it's a Latin phrase that is in essence the summary of the gospel. The gospel states that we Christians are simultaneously at the same time just or righteous and sinful at the same time. Samuel used to step back at door. That's who we are. At the same time, there is a sin principle in me. And if you were to see me on Poplar Avenue some evening, you would see it in stark colors. But at the same time, I am sinful and just. All right, um, I got to hurry because this other one. Um, gang, there's one more. And this is the thing that brought me back to this text. This is the observation made by a friend of mine that I thought, holy moly, I missed that. Gang, the, the other thing that I want you, I mean, the other, I think, which is a proof that he's talking about a regenerate man, beginning in verse 13 is that if you will read from verses 17 through 20, he is making a distinction between the I, I, and the sin that is inside him. He says, um, verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for I, I've got this thing called flesh. I've got this thing called sin. But then there's an I. All right, keep your finger there. 
and see if you can find Galatians real quick. Galatians 5, verse 17. This is what I missed. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you. You. There's a you, and inside there's a raging battle that goes on, but the real you is the one that has been set apart unto a whole different approach to life, guys. Um, and in the old days, those, those flesh and me were equally the same. We were, we were the same ones. We weren't twin brothers. We were the same thing. But as a Christian, only one of them is the real me. The you. That's the real me. You're not divided anymore between a Jekyll and a Hyde. I'm not two selves because one of them has been mortally wounded. As a Christian, guys, the Holy Spirit brings to an end all of my efforts to try and save myself via the law. That's what it means to be dead to the law. He then goes on to make it a guide by which I please the one who saved me. But I am dead to it as a means by which it would save me. Guys, the first four verses of Romans 7 talks about a husband who dies and then you're free to marry another. The point of that is not to give you permission to marry if your spouse dies. The point of the passage is the law died and I'm married to somebody else. Never again do I have to answer to the law. It is dead. And now that part of me there's a, a, a continuing battle and struggle that goes on, but it's between me, the you, and the sin principle that continues to dwell in me, which is not me. Um, gang, um, I, Paul, at, at the close of um, Romans 7, he says, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, so then I myself, he, he asks in verse 24, who will deliver me from the body of this death, death? And then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He is being delivered day by day by the Lord Jesus. And he's in a battle that now he cannot lose. The, the problem with us, guys, is that we don't really want to rely on Christ. I, I want to earn my way. I want to earn it by my moral rectitude. Um, 
I want Dr. Jekyll to be the one that God approves of. I want to be my own savior and not depend on one. So how do I do that? By law. By performance. And when I get married to another, when I come to Christ, that thing dies. It's dead. Let's say, and I'll wrap this up. Let's say we're, you're a Christian um, and you, can strug, you continue to struggle with a particular sin. Let's say you've got a habit, an addiction, uh, maybe alcohol, maybe porn, uh, maybe anger, maybe gaming, maybe it's your telephone. But ba- back in the old days, when I was trying to save myself by my own performance and obedience to the law, I would try to stop doing that thing, and then I would fail, and then I would feel um, so badly, and I would beat myself up over my failure. But as a Christian, the struggle with these things continues even to the point of failing. And you think, or the devil whispers into your ear, oh, nothing's changed. Nothing's changed with me. I'm just the same old bottom feeder that I always was. Wrong. It's a different battle, guys. As a non-Christian, sin was characteristic of my real self. But as a Christian, sin is my enemy. I hate it. Before, I wanted to avoid it because I was trying to save myself and I wanted to appear righteousness in my performance. But now, that's over. That's dead. Now, the real me wrestles, battles, struggles, even to the point of failure. And I hate it. Um, but why is it that now that I'm a Christian, all of those things that I used to love don't taste the same way? They don't thrill me like they used to thrill me. Because I'm new and I'm ruined for it. Um, it no longer is an expression of who I really am. I, I'm inconsistent, I fail, I give in to my habits. Yes. And I grieve over that. It sends me back to the Savior. Because this idea that I can save myself through, through law, through performance to law, I'm dead to that. Um, it is no longer the method by which I save myself. So my failure, though not a happy occurrence, 
it doesn't threaten to undo me as it used to. Now let me show you one other verse and I'm done. It's in Romans 6. This is why I brought you here. Paul says, verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Gang, in the whole sanctification process, in the whole sanctification life, one of the um, um, methods by which we grow is that we get this thing straight such that we reckon ourselves dead to sin. I used to be engaged in a battle that I could not win, but now, because I've been made new, I'm in a battle that I cannot lose. It has to do... So much of your progress has to do with how you view what has happened to you. Who is the real you? Who is the real me? There is a distinction now between that sin that drags me down and me. I reckon myself dead to that. And I'm alive. When I fail, it's a, it's a grief to me. But who delivers me from this wretched man? It's the Savior who daily is delivering me from my proclivities brought on because I was born in the image. I was born into sin. Gang, um, I think that's a, a, a very important distinction that you must learn to make. I was once as an unregenerate man in a battle that I could not win. But now having brought to life, I'm in a battle that I cannot lose. I struggle with sin. It no longer defines me. It is not. It is not the other me. It is a, it is a principle I was born with that I'm seeking to put to death. Sometimes I, I, I do pretty well. Sometimes I don't. But I don't ever again beat myself up over my failure um, because somehow my failure means that I'm not as good as I thought I was and God is not going to accept. That's law, ladies and gentlemen. And we as Christians, we're dead to that. I hope some of this is clear to you because I think it'll make a difference in the way that you uh, proceed uh, as a Christian. Let's pray. Oh God, I, I do pray that you will um, use these thoughts to clarify for your people uh, the battle that we're in, the struggle that we all experience, why we so often lose, and how we should view it when we do. And I pray that um, those sin, though Satan tries to whisper in our ear that we're really nothing, we're really no different. Would you use this passage as well as others to remind us 
that this is the very experience of every Christian. This battle that rages, but it is one that we cannot lose because we are dead to law and we have a new husband, Christ Jesus the Lord. We pray, of course, in his name. Amen.